I'm glad you're joining us on Radio Free Georgia's In Tune to Nature program. I'm host Carrie Freeman coming to you from Atlanta in January of 2021. Today, we're going to be talking with legal scholar and professor Manisha Dekka and her legal position on non-human animals as legal beings rather than legal status as objects or persons. This is outlined in her new book with University of Toronto Press called Animals as Legal Beings, Contesting Anthropocentric Legal Orders. Let me tell you about her. Um, Manisha Dekka earned her legal degrees from Columbia University and University of Toronto and is now a professor and the Lansdowne Chair at the Faculty of Law, University of Victoria and British Columbia, Canada. Her research and teaching interests include critical animal law, feminist analysis of law, post-colonial legal studies, reproductive rights, health law, and bioethics. Her work has been published in Canada and internationally in socio-legal and interdisciplinary journals. She has also contributed to multiple anthologies related to critical animal studies, feminism, cultural pluralism, and health law and policy. And she's the recipient of grants from the Canadian Institute of Health Research, the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council, and the Canada-US Fulbright Program. Professor Decca has held the Fulbright Visiting Chair in Law and Society at NYU. She currently serves on the editorial boards of Politics and Animals and Hypatia Journals. She's also the founder and academic director of the Animals and Society Research Initiative at University of Victoria. Uh, welcome, Professor Decca. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I've cited your work in my own writing, so it's really an honor to have you on the show. Um, oh let, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> let me start by asking, where did the idea for this book, Animals as Legal Beings, originate? Uh, what led you to write it? Oh my goodness. That is a, a decades-long story. Um, the I also wanted to write kind of, you know, a book length, a monograph on my views about what's wrong with the property status of animals. Right. And um, the idea though, that I was going to kind of take a stand as I do in the book against personhood, which is kind of like the natural legal status that people who don't like property as a legal status for animals turn to. That idea um, came more recently, um, I would say maybe um, five, six years ago, when um, I really, you know, reflected on on the implications of what the law said a person is, and whether or not that was an animal friendly status or not, and I did that reflection through various forms of critical theory and theorizing. Yeah. And so then, kind of, the book came together as not only do I want to critique uh, the property status of animals from a critical theoretical perspective, as I hadn't really seen done, um, you know, at that, that time in a longer uh, writing project. I also though wanted to critique personhood, which was more of a novel position in the animal law world. So um, the book generated, um, it's really in law school when I was able to find a professor to supervise a directed reading on a critical you know, take on the property status of animals. <laughs> and I was able to come back to it in future years um, to then you know, take a critical appraisal also of personhood and then um, uh, 
kind of write the chapters that flowed from that or that it um, that it kind of um, needed to be written to supplement what it would mean for this new beingness status to develop. Yeah, so I like that you're actually proposing it's not just a critique of one approach, but it's a um, it's a suggestion of another. So tell us the premise of your Animals as Legal Beings book, like your main argument. Okay. Yeah, so the main argument is that um, pro property obviously is a problem for animals. Mm -hmm. um, that sets, and I, I make that argument in a somewhat truncated way, um, using um, the Canadian legal landscape as a, as a case study and as a stand-in for all anthropocentric legal systems. And then that lets me turn to, well, what about personhood? And that's where I make the argument that, you know what? Personhood is also problematic for animals and this is why. And um, you know, the prongs of that argument is basically to look at its uh, liberal humanist history to suggest um, and really to demonstrate more than suggest that personhood, even when we talk about it today in contemporary times, is very much uh, a legal concept imprinted by this exclusionary history mm -hmm. that obviously formally subordinated uh, most groups of human people, right. even if those groups are formally equal today, but <laughs> definitely still subordinates animals. I take on the challenge, well, can't we rehabilitate the concept of personhood and, okay. and recuperate it from this history and yeah. you know, extend personhood to animals as we've extended it to previously marginalized human groups like women and otherwise. And I said, well, yes, that could be done, but personhood would still retain its kind of exclusionary mold. And mm. I make the case that the exclusion can't be like done away with, with just a simple extension because <laughs> built in to the property person divide, which is so foundational to the common law legal order that the United States, that Canada, other you know, previous colonial jurisdictions have inherited, right? And still living with this kind of colonial legal order um, that, uh, it actually pivots property and personhood as legal concepts actually pivots on a human animal divide such that you can't just move animals from the property status and elevate them to personhood status without really undoing the human animal divide that that shores that up and like it doesn't really make any sense and the third problem with that argument is that okay? Well, let's concede I'm wrong about those other two prongs: the the, the problem of history and its imprints today, and the fact that you know person property divide in law really only makes sense um, uh, when there is a species divide, such that you can't make animals persons without basically de-animalizing them, which is not what I want to do. Right. The book wants to respect the alterity and difference of animals, but not make them into honorary humans. Um, so, the, but in the third prong, I said, well, what if I'm wrong about all of that? Um, you know, personhood itself is a concept that is not going to materialize tomorrow in legal circles for animals in terms of being implemented. Right. Many still see it as a, as a reality that's far, far off. So if we're starting basically from first principles and looking for, <laughs> let's say, transformative status, 
let's really make it something transformative. Um, we don't need to go to existing legal categories all the time, uh, especially ones that have this type of baggage attached to it that's not easily done away with. Let's develop something from first principles from the ground up that could be more animal friendly. And I suggest that's what being this is. Interesting. So what makes aiming for the status of beingness, and you'll probably need to describe what, what beingness is, what makes beingness a better long-term legal strategy than aiming for something like personhood or selfhood or citizenship or some other status? Right. Okay. <laughs> so legal personhood is um, caught in a certain conceptual space. Interestingly, despite its kind of foundational identity in legal landscapes, right? Like how are, how are we made into contracting subjects? How are we made into subjects who can you know, enter into a contract? It's because the law sees us as a subject. How are corporations made into subjects? Through this vehicle of personhood, where we're seen as a subject, not an object, and we get to hold rights actually in property. So persons are those who hold rights in property to kind of put it um, you know, very simplistically. <coughs> Interestingly, when you kind of scan legal texts, so I'm talking here about decisions coming from courts, even statutes coming from legislatures, parliaments, um, there's not a lot of definition or defining or attention or discussion on what personhood means. Mm. It's one of those concepts that are just taken for granted. Yeah. Um, but when you turn to scholarly work where scholar, legal scholars have actually tried to excavate this concept from these legal texts, they show that there are different meanings of personhood. <laughs> One is the, the meaning that lets a corporation be a person and has let a corporation be a person for mm. centuries now, which is just personhood is can be applied to anything. It's like this empty vessel type of concept. Hmm. And that's, of course, why many animal lawyers turn to it. Because animals then can be persons just like corporations can be persons or rivers can be persons just like um, corporations can be persons. You don't need to be a human being. Like just a way to raise your status to right. get rights. Yeah. <laughs> so a person, a legal person is anyone who a court says is a legal person or anyone uh. not a democratically elected legislature and passing a statute says is a person. That's how corporations became persons, right? Through a judgment that said that and quite uncontroversial, uncontroversially. Um, but there's also a very prominent um, strand of personhood where it is discussed that really models the ideal person, uh, uh, that really says, who's a person in law? It's this like person who basically has no body, has no social identity, mm -hmm. and who privileges privileges privileges, privileges um, a life of reason mm -hmm. over everything else so that they're able to maximally reason and they go about their lives entering contracts or what have you um, as a reason and economic maximizer. Mm -hmm. Now, many feminist scholars, legal scholars have talked about how this person doesn't exist <laughs> and um, nobody runs their life like this. And this idea that we come into this world uh, without a body, that we are completely independent, that's another critical feature of right. personhood, and that we are always this paradigmatic reasoner, that no, no one lives up to this. And even if we just take that reasoning feature, um, we know that not all humans at 
can even as adults can live up to this ideal. And certainly we come into this life uh, with a different type of reasoning ability and we may <laughs> lead this life as our diff with a different type of reasoning ability even if at some point during our lives we reach this idea of a paradigmatic reasoner. Okay, but um, uh, the law still assumes this and this kind of comes out in its very prominent concept of the reasonable person. So a lot of legal tests ask about what would the reasonable person do? And that's how we decide what's kind of wrong and right. <laughs> what legal principles should be. So as many critical theorists, feminist theorists, anti-colonial theorists, disability theorists have argued, uh, this is a really troubling concept. Mm. It's exclusionary, it's um, uh, obviously ableist, and it has histories of other exclusion in terms of gender, race, class, um, age. Yeah. Okay, um, and a lot of child rights scholars write about this, right? That really, I mean, many people talk about without kind of any hint of embarrassment of children as quasi persons because right. they haven't reached um, this state of reasoning. <coughs> so my intervention in the animal legal world is to recognize why animal lawyers want the law to recognize person for animals is because that's the status that protects them from exploitation. When we are recognized as persons, at least theoretically, we're not supposed to be property, right? right. It, it, they're, yeah. they're usually exclusive categories and we're not supposed to be used without our consent for any means, um, instrumental means or agendas of anyone else. Um, so the that, I mean, we can understand why um, test case litigation asks for legal personhood. But at the same time, when you look at most test case litigation for animals, who are the animal subjects that become kind of the poster child for children for this test case litigation? It's invariably the animals that can kind of be made to be seen as human-like or <laughs> become as other people have argued honorary humans. Like those yeah. charismatic megafauna-like um, mammals you know, like elephants and dolphins and whales and chimpanzees and animals like that, maybe dogs. Exactly. And it's really the, the like the first set, Carrie, that you mentioned, at least in um, you know, Canada, the United States. Yeah. Um, it's definitely not the farmed animals. Right. right? It's not rats or chickens <laughs> and or snakes or frogs. Exactly. <laughs> so, and why is that? It's because law is a very conservative enterprise yeah. and the idea of precedent is that you have to kind of look for precedent to make it an, a movement in, in a new area and um uh if someone's asking for a novel decision i.e can we recognize this chimpanzee to be a person <laughs> there are those to be precedent for that or there have to be really strong arguments that are going to persuade a judge that and the wider legal community that it's not some ra radical bold decision to say that chimpanzees are persons. So that's why the, the humanizable um, animals are at like the core of this type of litigation. And when we think of the suffering of those animals in their various states of confinement, I don't want to diminish that for a moment. And it's horrible and extreme. And um, I can certainly understand the impetus for this type of test case litigation. At the same time, I worry that the arguments that then get consolidated and maybe picked up, taken up and accepted as precedent 
are those that are only going to recognize a certain type of rational type of animal, an animal that can reason to a certain capacity. Because when you reason by personhood precedence, that's what you're looking for, mm. right? So beingness, in contrast, is not about valuing animals for how human they are, how close they can approximate personhood's prize characteristics of being a paradigmatic reasoner. Yeah. The, the qualities of beingness that a court that said a court should value or legislators, policymakers thinking about new laws <coughs> to come into being, uh, to codify, to, to bring about, should value are not whether someone can reason. It's just the fact that someone has um, uh, basically an embodied being that they can not just feel pain, but it goes kind of a bit deeper than that. that we have is a, it a like consciousness? Of- There's always these categories that we're always no. wrestling with. How do we describe subjecthood or um, selfhood or consciousness or something like that? It's not a mental criteria. Okay. I mean, it just to be the kind of existence of being, having uh, a body. Um, okay. It's the, the idea of embodiment. Um, the fact that we are relational, animals including, okay. right, are relational. Yeah. And that animals are vulnerable. So the yeah. three features of, so just like today, personhood is kind of marked by the features of um, uh, uh, complete autonomy and disembodiment and hyper-rationality. Mm-hmm. Beingness is marked by the features of relationality, vulnerability, and embodiment. And we're and- all beings. So you and I and our dogs and frogs and everybody is a being. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so, um, um, animals other than, so uh, humans can be beings and yeah. other types of non-humans could be beings. And I discuss that in one chapter of the book, but, um, my focus is on really making the argument as to why animals need a different status in personhood and that they can be beings and what being this means and how they can be. beings. Yes. Okay. Uh, If you're just joining us on Radio Free Georgia, this is In Tune to Nature, and I'm host Carrie Freeman interviewing legal scholar Manisha Decca, professor and Lansdowne chair at the Faculty of Law, University of Victoria in British Columbia, Canada. We're talking about her new book with the University of Toronto Press called Animals as Legal Beings, Contesting Anthropocentric Legal Orders. Um, Manisha, how did your perspectives as a feminist scholar and post-colonial scholar inform your analysis for this book, Animals as Legal Beings? Because I, I can see I can see some of it in there with the idea of wanting to avoid that exclusionary concept of this quote unquote ideal person who is some kind of man, you know, in some enlightenment sense. And so is can you explain how beingness also kind of fits with feminism and critical animal studies and um, post-colonial scholarship uh, kind of mm-hmm. briefly, you know, that's, you can spend an hour on that, but just briefly. Yes, sure. Thank you for that question, Gary. Um, so yeah, my academic training were, it was exactly in those areas. It wasn't in animal studies or let alone critical animal studies or anything that was like that available in the, the uh, earlier nineties when I was an undergrad. Um, but, you know, I quickly kind of started thinking through the, the term papers I was writing in these types of courses, uh, feminist theory, uh, uh, post-colonial courses, um, about the whole idea of othering and yeah. um, the kind of Western Cartesian binaries that set up 
structural uh, systems of hierarchies and oppression. And there was very much like this mood of deconstruction, but I didn't see much attention to deconstructing the human animal boundary, which to me seemed very much like an artifice as well as that same man versus woman or um, culture over nature, reason over emotion, mind over body. <laughs> so I then, you know, when I, once I kind of came into my uh, academic position and started writing and teaching, um, I uh, really wanted to take on kind of what I saw as the core tenets of feminism and very much the, what had risen up by then, which is, you know, the claims of intersectionality or third wave feminism, um, to say, well, if we really want to deconstruct differences and think about identities, you know, what is really core to our identities is our human status as well. And um, we need to see kind of what um, the forces of anthropocentrism are in our lives, not only recognize that like as a point of privilege vis-a-vis non-humans, but also think about how anthropocentrism as a system is very much related to the other types of, you know, isms that we say are related, um, yeah. and which I believe are related. And um, <laughs> so that's part comes into the book when thinking about personhood and beingness, because personhood comes out of a very anthropocentric legal order. And anthropocentrism in the law is has been devastating um, right. for uh, peoples who are seen to be non-Western in terms of mm. you know, the non-recognition or the derision of um, uh, indigenous legal systems, pre-existing legal systems in, in uh, spaces that were colonized, which perhaps gave a much higher status to animals or even saw animals as kin rather than just as right. mere objects, right. right? And feminist theory is really important kind of in the whole illumination of the harms of the current animal industrial complex because but for the reproductive capacities of female mammals, um, you wouldn't have an animal industrial complex, right? right? We need to keep producing animals to keep using them, whether it's to eat them or otherwise. Right. And whose reproductive labor is appropriated and uh, violated um, and uh, whose families are decimated from this type of harnessing of, <laughs> of animal capital, um, that's a core critique that feminism has made about uh, about women and, and the integrity of their bodies. And so even beyond kind of looking at Cartesian um, problematic dualisms about uh, man over woman, mind over body, reason over emotion, how that's harmful to women and other marginalized groups. This is a core point drawing feminist concerns to animal concerns, just looking at how the power structures really uh, depend on the complete, com not just commodification of animals, but a very gendered commodification of uh, reproduction. And um, perhaps no more visible, or, or just the most visible in the dairy industry, when you think about, you know, appropriating yes. the location and yes. the birthing and the milk of another mammal um, for humans, which is supposed to go to a non-human. Absolutely. Other relationship that is devastating. Yeah. And we are running out of time, but I hope that our listeners have like have established that your book would be something worth reading. Definitely I'm going to read it. It's just come out uh, because it would be a revolutionary new way to think about our legal system. And we can see, I like how you're making connections with um, marginalized human groups and just even questioning the, no the very notion 
of personhood and how it's been established and that there could be another category, um, which is much more universal um, in its recognition. So I, I think it's yeah really astounding and important what you're doing. Thank you so much, Carrie. And thank you also for your work. Oh, yeah. Well, that's the end of our show, but I want to thank you, Professor Decca, for being with us on Radio Free Georgia's In Tune to Nature program. I hope the ideas in your book have a profound influence on legal views of non-human and human animals to raise their status for the benefit of all of us. Thank you so much. And thank you, everyone in the audience. Yeah, take care. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to In Tune to Nature, broadcasting every Wednesday at 6.30 p.m. Eastern Time online at wrfg.org and on Atlanta radio station 89.3 FM. We post action items, news, and podcasts on the show's website, facebook.com backslash Nature. You can also find podcasts on popular streaming sites. The views and opinions expressed on Intune to Nature do not necessarily reflect those of WRFG, its board, staff, or volunteers. I'm one of those volunteers. I'm host Carrie Freeman, asking you to please support independent, non-commercial media like Radio Free Georgia. And remember to take care of yourself and others, including other species or other beings. Thank you for listening. Cheers.